0: to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I am your host, Dr. M, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Ashley Merriman. Ashley is the co-author of one of the best parenting books ever written called Nurture Shock. She obtained her bachelor's degree in fine arts at the University of Southern California School of the Cinematic Arts. She also went on to get her Juris Doctorate from Georgetown University. Those two educational backgrounds provide her, in my estimation, with this ability to write in a way that is very detailed, yet also artsy, and it makes for a very good read. Uh, Her deep love of the science and her ability to put the data out there for us to decide how we're going to use it is critical when we think of how great a book can be. She is an excellent interviewee, as she is very motivated to discuss the issues at hand, and also willing to push back on stuff when you talk about it, which I find very refreshing. The conversation is free flowing. It is just a joy to be a part of. And I hope you can give the full hour a full listen, because there is lots and lots and lots of news to use in here for the average parent or just anyone in general so without any further time wasted i hope you enjoy my conversation with ashley merriman good morning ashley merriman from the wonderful district of dc or actually technically arlington i am so happy to have you on this podcast it's been many years since i first read the fabulous book that is
1: otherwise known as nurture shock so welcome thank you so much um, yes, I live in what we affectionately call the DMV. Yeah. Uh, it's the District of Maryland and Virginia, but this little area around it and, you know, lots of government workers standing in line. So I live in the DMV. Yeah,
0: ah, Too good, too good. So let me start with a little, uh, uh, just sort of a discussion or actually a piece of writing written in the New York Times by Pamela Paul. So quote, Nurture Shock, with its Toffler-esque title, promises to revolutionize parenthood with quote, new thinking about children, end quote, according to authors Poe Bronson and Ashley Merriman. Nurture shock is the panic common to new parents that the mythical fountain of knowledge is not magically kicking in. It's that gut pummeling doubt that hits the moment you bring your first child home to the hospital. They let us keep this thing. And snowballs from there, such feelings of inadequacy, the authors suggest, are justified. But as they write, with deeply felt earnestness, small corrections in our thinking today could alter the character of society long-term, one future citizen at a time." End quote. So for me, that really captured a lot of what I felt as a young parent when I came home with my child, even having medical degree, lots of apparent knowledge from good institutions. And I still felt like, holy cow, they let me keep this thing. So then nine years after I'm in private practice, I run into this book nurture shock. I'm like, what is this nurture shock? What an interesting name. So I started reading it. And honestly, I couldn't put it down. I dog-eared. I still have my original copy sitting next to me. It's underlined, dog-eared, highlighted, because it it oh. comes with that, what I call social science understanding. And I think of social sciences like I think of nutrition science. They're imperfect, but boy, they get us as close as we can to really understanding what's going on. And you guys did an amazing, amazing job at pinning down complex topics in those 10 chapters to give us an understanding of what really parents need to know, instead of, you know, our previous version of it's just anecdote, it's just passed down from generation to generation. So let's start there. Why did you write this book? Because for me, I love your book.
1: Well, thank you so much. We should stop now. (laughs) that's great we're all folks we're here all week tip your waiters um <laughs> <laughs> you know it's interesting Poe and I had not well it, it, depending on when you where where you start the story when you start the story Poe and and I'm going to tell you the story version if that's okay
0: yeah the
1: um Poe and I were working on an article for New York magazine on the science of ambition And we were interviewing all of these New York tycoons, as one does for an article about ambition in New York magazine. And I had decided, like, let's just for fun, ask everybody on a scale of one to ten, rate your ambition. And I think I had at least five, maybe ten of them say 15. (laughs) Dale of one just 10, there isn't a 15, no, 15, I'm a 15. And they were all so tickled because they were all convinced no one else had done that but everyone had done that. So these ambitious people, it, they couldn't be at the top. They had to just blow out the scale which already shows you something about ambition, right? And I'm like, okay, well, that's cool. Um, Thank you for not playing my game. (laughs) Why, you know, when did you know you were this ambitious? Since you clearly know you're more ambitious than everyone. And everyone kept saying, oh, well, you know, I was two years old when I had my first part-time job. I started a business. And, and you know, you're hearing all of these stories of the two-year-olds and the three-year-olds who are negotiating deals for paper routes and all this kind of stuff. And at a certain point, I started going, okay, well, this is clearly tycoon lore. This is the story you're supposed to tell as a tycoon about your fact that you know, Mozart was a, um, was a child genius and so were you. But the more we kept hearing these stories and Poe was hearing similar ones when he, in his conversations, I started going, well, when do you really know? When, when do you see motivation in children? Even at two or three, does that actually matter? Because clearly they think it does. I'm not convinced, but they clearly think it matters. So I started doing the research and looking into child ambition, child motivation, and I found a research study authored by Carol Dweck, and it was about the effects of praise on kids. And I'm like, well, praise would certainly seem relevant to motivation and ambition. I think I should read this. And I went, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, Um, pretty much every paragraph. And it was a very long study with many multiple pieces and, and, and all kinds of stuff going on in it. And I, and I barely finished the study before I immediately got on the phone with Poe. And I said, you have to stop. I'm, I just sent you an article and you must stop everything you are doing to read this. And he's like, no, Ash, I'm on the phone with, him. you know, I've got a meeting now. I'm like, I don't care and he could tell I did not care and I was very serious I needed him to read the study right then and a few minutes later the phone rings oh my god oh my god and he had the same reaction I did so we went so we wrote this article about the ambition uh the science of ambition and we stuck in the middle this big passage about Carol Dweck and kids (laughs) And we're like, because this is suddenly the article we want to write, but yeah. we have contract to write a different article about grownups. And wisely, the editor at New York Magazine said, wait, 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 what's this thing in the middle about the kids? <laughs> Go write that, because that's what you want to write, and that's what I want you to write. And we were like, you are correct. Um... So throughout the whole article, started all over with the, a really in-depth look, not just at Carol, but other people's research and the science of kid, praise on kids. And, you know, obviously had a, you know, Carol was the centerpiece of it, but there was definitely a lot of other research going on in there. And so New York ended up putting it on the cover of the magazine and it went pretty viral. Um, I saw people in Nepal blogging about it. (laughs) I was like, I didn't really know that people in Nepal were regular New York readers. (laughs) Interesting. Uh, Because, you know, New York Magazine has such a Upper East and West Side vibe. Right. And, um, but lots of people were talking about it in all kinds of conversations, level of empirical research. And I'm going to look at this with the same level of uh, skepticism isn't quite the right word, but I want to take this seriously. Scrutiny. yeah. And I wanted, and I want to take these topics as seriously as someone else who might be writing a book about cancer. The fact that they're kids and they're short and they're cute does not negate the fact that this should be about science. And you nope. really wanted to write a book about science and it wasn't a book about tips. And we wrote at the beginning, there are no tips here <laughs> and there are no tips in nurture shock we would if, if we either one of us thought a sentence even hinted at a tip we struck it because what we wanted to do is say here's the science you can apply this maybe this doesn't relate to your kids that's possible I've never met your family how, how do I get I'm not we thought one of the problems was people You know, total strangers on the street will tell you how to raise your children, but they don't know you and they haven't met your kids. So that sounded sort of ridiculous to me. And what I wanted to do is say, here's what the scientists have found. And does this change your understanding of what's going on in your family? That's up to you. I don't know your family, but can you apply this in a way that you, you know, some things I don't think I need to tell you, right? You know, I know I think you want to talk about sleep. Uh, we didn't yeah. need to write to "get kids more sleep," we right? But if if we thought if we had told you the evidence of not getting enough sleep, you hadn't by the end of the day said, you know, I should get my kids more sleep, then we have failed, <laughs> right? I right. didn't think there was any added value in the bullet points, right? So, um, but so I think that's one of the really interesting things and there definitely have been other books since that have done that but I don't think to quite the militant no tips level that we've done, and, and I think that's important.
0: Yeah,
1: I think that you know, like there is a place and time for tips. Uh, we actually did an excerpt of Nurture Shock about sleep before we went back to New York Magazine and they were like, oh, we're hiring other people to write a, write a, an article of tips to go with your article. And we were like, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll do the tips. We can yeah. do tips. <laughs> not that I don't have opinions but I want there to be a baseline of information. So you know why I gave you that tip and where did that come from? And the next time someone gives you a tip, you can hopefully ask different questions. So that's, you know, one of my random backgrounds as a training as a lawyer and in being a lawyer, you're trained to, you know, the person who asks the questions wins because they set the thing. So what I was really hoping as much as particular issues were obviously very important to me, that's why we wrote them. But it was also about telling parents, use this to think differently and to ask better questions, both of yourself, of your kids and the people around you to make sure you're doing the right thing. So that was sort of the, one of the sort of, and sometimes we actually wrote that in the introduction and inclusion, and sometimes it was the secret thing that Poe just <laughs> put
0: together. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Because that when I read it, that was what I, I noted in there. But for me, I'm always looking for the tips to pass along to the parents, right? Because I am the pediatrician in the room. So invariably, I did synthesize your data into tips. But I say it, the it, one thing—it's easy to do.
1: We yeah. just didn't do it. We wanted we wanted to be facially neutral and then let okay. you go. Oh, and make up that decision on your own. Because everybody—that's yeah. what everybody says these days, right? Well, I'm going to do my own research. I'm like, I did my I did the research, but you can make your own conclusion. Right,
0: and and know, you did it well with a storytelling mentality, which is always so useful when you're reading a book. Which again, kudos to you guys for having that journalistic background to write in that way to make it an easy read. Because oftentimes you read scientific literature and it's it's drugs, and, oh, it's dra- dragging, dragging, dragging. It's painful. So again, getting back to how wonderful that was. So let's, if you're ready, I let's shift gears. I into don't know that. if
1: you're old enough to remember the TV show Mash. Oh, yeah, um, But you know, you remember Radar would always. Yeah speak at the same time as the colonel did yeah and i loved mash growing up and i kind of always had that in the back of my head and when, you know people occasionally joke you know what's your superpower and I'm like my superpower or my special skill is i can translate english to english it's a limited skill <laughs> But when it's useful, it's very useful. And then I kind of flash back in my head to radar <laughs> translating yeah, yeah, yeah. English English.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 totally, totally. So let's go to chapter one: mindset and praise. So, uh, you know, I picked a couple of chapters to talk about so the listeners, which are mostly parents, but a, a fair amount of clinicians and providers as well you know, let's, let's look at, let's look at a little bit deeper dive as to mindset and praise. Cause again, I think Carol Dweck's work is some of the most seminal in the last 20 years. So she did the laboratory studies where, you know, children took an initial test were praised based on intelligence or what some people call IQ ability. And no. then look.
1: Wait, wait, wait. She told them they were smart. Or they worked hard. It was, there was no baseline assessment based on their actual intelligence.
0: Oh, good, clarify. All
1: good. just telling the kids, oh, you were really smart. You must, that's why you must have done well. Or, oh, you worked hard at this. That's why you must have done well. So the the manipulation was actually that the kids were told why they had succeeded. It wasn't that they they had, they had done a baseline IQ test and figured out which were the smart kids and then saw okay. how they were doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so 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 go with that study, because, again, Mm -hmm. you know, my my recommend my recollection of it's obviously a little bit different. But so when she did this work, she sort of showed that this this what you tell the child based on their performance versus what their ability, quote unquote, is being told there they have provided a massively different outcome in how they were able to then persevere or see themselves. So talk about her work.
1: Well, so the sort of classic Harold Dweck experiment, although there've been many, she's done many replications before and since, and other people have done their other versions of it, but sort of the basic construct, it was she do it with fourth and fifth graders, mostly fifth graders. And um, she would have them come into the lab and she'd give them a little, a few quiz, you know, few questions on a, a quiz. And the research assistant would say, look at the score. Didn't matter what the score was, right? This is irrelevant. This is a psychology experiment. But they would tell the kids, oh, wow, you did really well at that. You must be really smart. And then other kids received, you know, again, notwithstanding what their score was, were told, Wow, you did really well at this. You must have worked hard. And it was just that difference between you who were smart or you worked hard. And then they said, hey, do you wanna take another quiz? And the kids who worked hard wanted to do another quiz and they did better than they did the first time. The kids who were told they were smart most of them didn't wanna take the quiz again. And if they did, they um, did not do as well. They were actually underperforming. And so what we're learning from this lesson, and again, all of these other replications is that this attribution to smarts, we thought, you know, the research, there was sort of a theory, if we build kids' self-esteem, if we tell them they're wonderful, they will live up to their reputation. And what the research in Carol's work and meta-analysis by Ray Baumeister and a lot of other folks has found that no, that's actually not true at all because kids realize they may not live up to their reputation. So they're actually going to scale back, right? I don't wanna take another quiz because I'm gonna prove to you I'm not as smart as you think I am. So I'm just gonna stop now, right? Whereas the kids who are priests for being, you know for being told that they worked hard Oh, well, then I should work hard again. That seemed to have worked. And working hard is under my control, whereas being smart or not is not. So so I can prove to you I can work hard by working harder. And there seems to be more of a zero-sum game if the phrase is focused on that intelligence. Um, I will put an important asterisk on this, which we actually wrote about in Murder Shock, which is in as obsessed as the American culture is with smarts. Uh, the Chinese culture is as obsessed with working hard, and at a certain point, kids may start believing that the ability to work hard or not is an innate skill—you either got it or you don't, just like we would think about intelligence. So those kids actually could max out on the work hard and effort, and say, "Ah, uh, you know, I just can't work as hard as that other kid. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna go play ball now because I just can't study." So at any point we actually start teaching kids the sort of determinative, it's an innate skill, you've either got it or you don't, that's the issue. And it's not even just about intelligence, right? You can see this obviously would be, This is about athletic ability or artistic ability, or I can do math. I'm just not a math person. Anytime you started to talk about blank person, what you're saying is this is something I have an innate ability. I don't, I, I do, or I don't. And then for kids, it becomes really destructive because they're kids. They're not anything yet, right? Right. They've got to learn about it and they've got to be willing to develop over time. And so that's where the main thrust of the importance of mindset is, not just in this one praise category, but- It's that belief that if I do something better, I can change and
0: improve. Right, sort of that, sort of that. What she, I think, has always called the growth mindset versus <laughs> yes. the fixed mindset. And right. I think that's also uh, very pervasive in the Japanese culture as well, where the, mm-hmm. the the reality is that effort determines the outcome and not the ability naturally. I mean, I think if you've um, looked at the the uh, ten thousand hours reality of people doing. Processes to get to be experts at anything all along the way. Your second book, I know, got into this a little bit that there are competitions along the way that will help steer the person towards success or failure based on those competitions and how they how they come to meet that competition. I think that combination is what invariably is is what parents need to hear or understand about this is that the pre. I
1: think it's a little complicated. Go ahead,
0: yeah, yeah, push back.
1: So I'm not saying there aren't any differences. Um, there are people who are going to be more talented or more facile in a particular thing and usually do sure. the thing you love. Um I I don't want, but I but whether or not that's true, is it relevant to encouraging kids to develop a skill or not? Correct. Right? You know, a, a you know, a really short little kid who probably is not going to end up being a basketball player in, in the NBA because he's too short. I still want to encourage him. I don't want to pretend that he's tall. We all know he's right. short. He does too. Um, and he knows this is a disadvantage, but I still want him to learn those skills and still think that I can I can become better and I can do things. And that's, I think, the focus. It, the um, unfor- you know, the 10,000 hours is buzzy, but the science is just improved in it. <laughs> so that, you know, in, in, top dog, we sort of said, you know, 10,000 hours, you got it or you're not at some point you got to comp- perform. Um, so we didn't actually talk about that. Um, I David, thought they were
0: yeah. mutual. I thought they were more mutually inclusive in the sense that, you know, you need that performance as well, but that 10,000 hours is the classic repetition that brings in the muscle memory, whether it's brain memory or throwing memory or any of that. I thought they were both inclusive.
1: Um, Yes, but people think that means then you need a target of ten thousand hours, and you don't.
0: Oh, right, I get you. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people and get there faster, some people get there slower, for sure.
1: The fastest sprinters seem to hit their peak at two thousand hours. Right. Right. Uh,
0: understand.
1: Uh, yeah. So it's so, it's more so. I, again, you know, I don't really understand. What, I mean, I I know I know technically what it is. I've read the studies in terms of deliberate practice and stuff like that. I sure. Um, it's skill development. Right. That, that is the important thing. And, and, it, and it definitely needs to be actual skill development. Um, thinking about something is not the same as doing it. It right. can be helpful, but at some point you have to do it. Right. Um, but yeah, so they're all related. They're None of these are like completely opposite except for the basic premise of building self-esteem leading to more achievement, which lots of science now has disproven. That is not true. Higher achievement leads to higher self-esteem, but higher self-esteem does not lead to more achievement. If anything, it can be a disincentive because you think you're so awesome. You don't need to improve.
0: Right. And I think, well, and I think also brings in the whole anxiety realm of if you think you're Mm -hmm. awesome and then all of a sudden you run into a brick wall of trouble, a task gets harder, this gets harder, whatever the task is harder, then people will end up crumbling. I think that's been a big problem with the trophy for showing up reality of the last 15, 20 years. You know, Mm -hmm. I remember when my daughter was doing gymnastics and they had 18 places and 18 medals.
1: How many? 18?
0: Uh, maybe 22 i mean something oh insane like can you that. imagine like,
1: being the, t- the the 19th uh, just, person uh, every,
0: uh, le- every level of it you are leaving and there's 20 girls walking away and they have enough medals to look like they've been to 20 olympics and the message that was coming across was very interesting to me when I was watching this stuff. And then you get the show up medal for soccer, and I think that the, the the perverse incentive that was put out there of this reality that, yeah, hey, you know, you did a great job, you showed up, is uh, to me as cut the legs right out from under the kids of what competition is all about. And and I think competition needs to come with love and and respect. But competition is not a net negative. In the in general, competition I think is very much a net positive. So I thought that, you know, that
1: mm-hmm. kind of- yeah, well, it's interesting. My my progression on this topic. When Poe and I wrote Nurture Shock, you know, the first chapter is about praise. And I think we had a I think we might have referenced something about hmm, trophies. And and then and we wrote this whole book about competition. And the same again, there was a hmm, trophies for everyone. Hmm. And over the course of writing those two books, and then the next year after writing after Top Dog came out, I became more and more and more hostile against everybody. Who gets a trophy programs. I now hate them.
0: <laughs> Agreed. I
1: mean, I can't. I mean, there. In case that sounded ambivalent, I hate them. <laughs> I detest. I loathe. Get out the thesaurus, I am and I'm hostile to them yeah. because over time what i realized looking at the research of motivation, research in terms of the science of competition, the science of praise, that the point of competition is not to win. The point of competition is to test oneself to see how good you are, and to see if you need to improve more, and can you prevail. Correct. And, you know, I mean, you're, you know, in a particular competition you can say today I'm here to win, but you're also still there to, you know, sometimes you win because the other guy missed his bus,
0: Yeah,
1: right? It has nothing to do with you. And, you know, what do you take from that? So competition is really about pushing oneself to another level. And we have to be able to give kids the space to fail. We don't need to set them up for failure. You know, I've I've had parents say, you know, my, should I just intentionally put my kids in things I know they're bad at so they can experience failure? And I'm like, no, they're kids. They're going to screw up. You don't need to stage failure, but you need to be okay when it happens. And the Everybody Gets a Trophy program, you know, the message is you're wonderful. Everything you do must get a trophy. Everything you do must be publicly recognized as a success, even when you know you failed, lost, was disastrous, whatever. And failure is so terrible, we have to pretend it doesn't exist. Right. And, and I'm very concerned over time, what message this is saying, which is if I don't get no, I get a trophy, if I know I'm not gonna be getting accolades, I'm not even going to participate and I can't deal with an honest assessment or an experience of failure because it's just goes against everything I've been taught. And I just, I just want kids to have an experience where it's no big deal to lose. Yes, it sucks, but we go over, you know, we, but we grew. We, you know, and part of growing is congratulating the person who did better than you. That's the hardest lesson, right? Right. In, you know, I I talked to a lot of Olympians before and after, Um, top dog and you know nobody ever tells someone who just won the gold yeah but it's not if you won or lost it's how you played the game we only tell that to the losers yeah now that's a mistake we should actually tell that to the winners but we don't so we need to give kids that opportunity to make a mistake to not be celebrated and to learn that that's okay
0: right and I think of the process again being the key. I think of my own my own son. We played chess a lot when he was young, and during the game, you know, one of the things I would make sure was I wasn't lying to him about my ability versus his. I would play a game straight up with him. But if he made a mistake, I'd say, "Hey, do you want to take that back?" When he was in the learning stages, but then when he started getting better, I said, "You know, you're getting good enough now. I'm not going to let you have these givebacks anymore. If I, I'm going to point it out to you, but I'm going to take your piece." And <laughs> and let me tell you, the first time he won. Well, he was probably ten years old. He beat me, and to say he danced around the room for an hour—I mean, <laughs> everybody on the planet knew he beat me that day. I and think it was I remember leg- hearing it.
1: I think I yeah, yeah, it. and it was
0: legit. Yeah. I mean, he he played a beautiful game, and and I, I remember sitting there going. All that hard work's paying off, and look at how you're playing it. And there, so, there's mm-hmm. something to be said about that, because you know, getting to the other chapter that you had about, you know, why kids lie. Well, well, they lie to some extent because we teach them to lie because we give them information in the way we offer our verbal information out there. That sometimes they say, "Well, Dad's lying here, or Mom's lying here." So. To me, that process is also trying not to tell a lie like, oh, you're good enough before you're good enough, right? So a lot of that I think is, is sort of the, <clears throat> to me, the news to use for parents and understanding the process is critical.
1: I think the way to think about it is praise is recognition for achievement and encouragement is go, you can do it. Yeah, good. And, we, and we don't, and don't flip those. Right. A lot of what we do is we actually go, oh my gosh, that was so great. It's not great. They're not even done yet. Right. Right. So we're using praise, that recognition of achievement to motivate in lieu of encouragement. And that's a mistake. What we need to do is keep those two things separate. Praise when it's real, which is limited. <laughs> Don't right. overpraise. Praise for something that's new. If it's the first time a kid's done something and it's hard, go ahead praise them for that if they've slid down the slide 5,000 times and it's their favorite thing to do, you don't need to praise them for that, right? Right. right. So, so splitting those is important. And research actually found that that this is to such an extent by 12 years old, kids actually recognize that an indica- being told that they were praised was actually, they thought this was, meant someone was worried about them. Yeah. Because was, they'd heard so much false praise And the kids who actually were doing well got criticism, right? Well, I think you can do better. And the kids we were worried about were, that was so great. So then they were also given permission to stop. Because we'd sort of indicated we thought they had done as much as they could, and you know they can stop now, right? And it was interesting that once I read that, I was that was another one of those lightning bolt moments where I was like, oh my god, I have completely done that to kids, and I'm sure they knew. And overnight, I stopped, and it was so funny. I you know my tutoring program, there was this young there she was maybe 15. And I've been tutoring her since she was seven. And um, she'd written, I was uh, going over an essay with her and I said, Oh, that sentence is lovely. And she started and just like flew out of her chair. Like I delivered an electric shock. And I said, what, what? She's like, you've never said that before. I'm like, well, you've never written a lovely sentence before, but that's a genuinely lovely sentence. And she said, I know because you never would say that unless it wasn't true." I know. And and she was so much like your your son with the real win in dancing. The fact that she was, you know, I mean, I wasn't abusive, I wasn't saying everything you're doing is terrible. But when she did something that rose to the occasion, I commented it and she knew it was real and it meant so much to her. And this was, you know, God, 10 or 12 years ago now, and both of us still remember that moment. So yeah, so that record, you know, again, praise achievement encourage is encouraged don't get these two Twain's confused to mix it
0: up and i sort of look at that (laughs) and i I like that split too because i sort of look at encouragement as unconditional love you're sitting there in a space of i love you kid i'm here to encourage whatever your choice is and i've said this story before i think it's a sort of a, a funny one i remember when i was in third grade and we're walking into the gymnasium in school and they're picking instruments. So what are you going to play and my sister and brother when they went through years before me, my sister picked the flute my brother picked the violin. So my parents are walking with me thinking Oh, this kid's probably going to pick something similar no 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 I but the moment I walked in the room, I knew what I wanted It was all the way at the other end, which was the drums. And I remember walking down one after They're like, you like this, you like this? I'm like, no, no, you like this? No, no, and I walk the other way. And you could see it like in their eyes, like, oh, he's not, oh, he, but knowing my personality, <laughs> knowing my personality, they were probably like, oh God, he wants the drums, doesn't he? And I get there and I remember going, that's what I want. And they didn't be, I mean, they didn't, you know, bat an eye. They were like, okay, if that's what you want. And deep down inside, they're probably dying. All the noise I was going to make, but it was that, <laughs> please, in that yeah, moment. Please.
1: Please, son, pick the piccolo, please. Pick yeah, the
0: piccolo. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but in that moment, as a third third grade or an eight-year-old, what unconditional love message is that? Like, I am going to listen mm-hmm. to you struggle with this loud instrument that's going to make me crazy instead of my, my mom getting to listen to Julio Iglesias. It's me on the drums. But to <laughs> me, at that moment, that message was incredible. And I, you know, now, you know, I'm 51, and, and it's a whole amazing reality of to, to look at that to me. That's the praising that effort part. Like that wasn't effort yet, but that was the, just opening the heart for, hey, you can do whatever you want, kid, even if it's loud. Encouragement. 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 Correct. Correct. So that, that's the key. So that separation of those two things, I think is great. So Mm -hmm. that was perfect. So let's segue now, because I think we really did an awesome job with that one. I love how you came across with, with all that information and specifically that ending. So let's go to sleep, talk about some of the research around sleep, because as a pediatrician, Sleep is definitely a major, major problem in society right now for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, between the late, the the early start times for high schoolers, which I think is is insane that we persist in doing this, yep. to the the social media nightmare that has really I think taken away a lot of their their sleep time by having phones in the rooms and things, especially in my patient population where I'm at. So I know, you know, a bunch of research had showed that, you know, I think there was some high school students in one of the um, research articles that you had looked at where their grades improved for every 15 minutes of sleep. I There was something stating there that, you know, if they had 15 more minutes, those kids had more A's and then the next group had more B's mm-hmm. based on that. So so let's touch on that.
1: Um, yeah, in Dinah, Minnesota. <laughs> Kyla Wallstrom, the, um, they they've done large population studies where they actually changed school start times and looked to see how much that actually impacted the class. Um, at Edina, the um, student's SAT scores went up about 200 points, which when I first told the college board representative, he said I was lying because that was just an unheard of improvement. I mean, if you pay Kaplan or some of those places, that's how you you get a 200 point increase. But he was was just like, you're lying. That can't be. Right. Yeah. Well, they're so sleep deprived. They're not learning. And the brain research now shows that sleep deprivation reduces not only your memory of what you have learned, it actually changes what you can Mm -hmm. learn and processes it along the way. So, you know, basically I, I think of sleep and I'm not the only person who's made this analogy. It's not perfect, but it's kind of close. Uh, sleep is when you save to your brain's hard drive. And, you know, we've all had that, you know, studying for a quiz in the car on the way to the (laughs) class. Right. Um, and you might, and maybe you passed the quiz, but 20 minutes after the quiz, you have no recollection of what happened, right? Correct. You, know, you don't remember the quiz and you certainly don't remember the information. That's because that was staying in RAM. You did not save to hard drive. And sleep is when we saved a hard drive what we have learned during the day. And so this research has actually said, well, if we move school start times, does that actually improve grades? And the answer is yes. It improves grades because kids are actually more cognitively engaged and awake. You know, if you're, if you're there at six in the morning, you probably aren't paying attention and you may literally be sleeping during class. Um, so they were more awake and focused to actually take in the information, but then they actually retained more of the information. So there have been these sort of large scale whole school districts and what has that done? But then there have also been lab experiments where they'll move kids sleep for three or four nights. And they give them a math quiz on monday and they give them one on friday and they find that by friday the kids math scores have improved and this isn't a practice test for, you know just practice a test you know they've they've done this before this is actual new content and in one of those studies they you know well, more than one but what i'm thinking about right now uh, the kids were wearing actographs, which is it looks like a wristwatch, but it's actually measuring your quality of sleep by how you're moving and that kind of thing. And what they found is when they moved to the kids' bedtimes by a half an hour, the kids were really only getting about seven to twelve minutes more of sleep. Because again, you know, we all know from every time we change, you know, change the clock. Just the fact you change the clock doesn't immediately change your body clock, right? You know, it takes a while. So telling them on Monday, get more sleep, didn't necessarily move their bedtime a half an hour. But so just, you know, having that seven minutes of actual more sleep within four days was actually improving their math ability. So, it and, and, I, and I think that's really important for parents and for pediatricians to tell parents, because a lot of times I hear, well, I I can't get my kid an hour more sleep. I would be great, but I can't get it for me. I can't get it for my kid. There's a bus and that's all I can do five minutes eight minutes can actually make a difference it's not this binary well if my kid can't get enough sleep they should just walk around sleep deprived giving them some is better than nothing uh the makeup nap on the weekends for is a band-aid it can't it's sort of with an asterisk kind of better than not getting sleep um, but the reason I'm hesitating there is obviously if you have so many long sleeps and naps during the day, you can throw off your night's sleep then, and then right. you can kind of make it worse. But it, in some ways, you know, it's important because if your kid's napping, if your kid's falling asleep in the car, they're not getting enough sleep. If you're right. wondering, well, my kid at wake has, you know, alarm clock, they're not getting enough sleep. But a lot, you know, a lot of parents think their kids are, their kids are getting enough sleep even the kids well most of them in private surveys will go no i'm exhausted uh, but they don't want to admit it uh, but if they're falling front sleep in front of the television or something like that they're not getting enough sleep and you know one of the researchers cuz you know this is always when, when you're interviewing scientists it always immediately at some point becomes about you, right? Your issues.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and
1: you try not to do that, and occasionally it sneaks in. And I was talking about how I would, there was a particular class at you um, when I went to college that I fell asleep in every, every day. I was just, the second the professor spoke, I was out. And I wasn't the only one. He was well known for this because he had a very soporific. Monotone. <laughs> and so he was quite well known for lots of us fell asleep. At one point, I saw him walk through a lobby and I yawned. I mean it was Pavlovian at that point. <laughs> so I um so I asked him, like, well, so what's that about? And they said, No, you're sleep, you were sleep deprived. Like, no, no, he's just really boring. Like, no, if he was boring and you had gotten enough sleep, you would have just sat there being really bored. Doodling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you would have. Yeah. And you like, you would have been in acne because you'd have been bored. The fact that he was boring and you were sleep deprived meant your body went, Oh, is this time for sleep? And you would pass out, but it wasn't, but he, they kept saying, you know, biologically, you can't sleep if you don't need it. So if you're, you know, if you need a nap, if you're falling asleep at unexpected times, that's because your body needs it. If, you're, if you've got a teen on a couch, who can't get up off the couch and is, oh, you know, you should be, you know, doing the lawn or something. Uh, the reason they passed out is because they don't have enough sleep and it's something we really need to take seriously.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the basic science research is is really ferreting a lot of this stuff out. I know there's an article in Science by Dr. Sorelli looking at exactly what you're saying about this laying down of memory. And it turns out that the synapses are pruned, roughly 80% of them, during the deep phase of sleep. And you're only going to get into these deeper, deeper phases if you have long enough sleep. And that also depends on chronobiology as well. I know Dr. Mm-hmm. Walker's done a lot of work looking at chronobiology and we all have different chronotypes and so for some people seven seven thirty seven and a half hours is enough some people leave nine and figuring your sleep sweet spot out is what you're saying right so if you're not sleep pressured during the day the odds are your chronotype is fine if you're getting seven and a half hours persistently but at seven and a half hours if you feel tired and you're napping during the day then your sleep pressure says you need more and so i think that's also part of this individualization of understanding is to help parents understand that if your kid is sleeping seven but they're crushing the day with no problem they fall asleep fine without any naps or anything, then maybe their chronotype is okay.
1: Well, I probably not. I mean, I, I think, you know, what you mentioned with the synapse formation, that's true for adults, but actually in terms of when kids are learning and when grownups are learning like you know kids spend way more time in deep sleep than we do slowly sleep yep. yep and that and so that may indicate that's when some of the learning happens but different types of things uh motor skill you know if you're learning a language there's memory of the vocabulary memory of the spelling there's actually the motor skills in terms of where are you putting your tongue where are you putting your mouth and each one of those different things actually requires different parts of sleep it's not this unidimensional and you know people go oh well you know there's you know, rem and not rem no there's rem and not rem and sleep <laughs> and deep right. right
0: alpha and delta
1: one of these right and so so the so the amount of time your kid is getting you know we focus on the seven to eight hours well that's what grownups are supposed to be getting correct but you know, your brain isn't grown up until, depending on the neuroscientists you're talking to, 21, 22, 23, 25. Right. So, so the time that they need isn't necessarily going to be indicative at one point compared to three months or six months from now. It's going to depend on their physiology, where they are in puberty, their seasonality issues. And, and, and these just, they're not fixed in time. And the hard part for parents and kids right now is, you know, you really only know how much sleep they need during a vacation and not the first three days. Cause the first three days, you're in a, you're on this sort of biologically programmed clock, right. but it's when you just go to sleep when you need to, and you wake up when you need to, and you've done that persistently for a few days. That's when you actually know how much time you need. And it's very difficult because in our modern worlds we just rarely have that time to do that there's you know a meeting in the morning you're supposed to go to or a late night you know all nighter to do work so it's really hard to actually find out what you need i think the better course is to well if you you know look for actual signs of sleep deprivation you know do you need an alarm clock you are de- by definition sleep deprived if you've got enough sleep you would wake up right Um, Are you perseverating? This is one of my big clues. (laughs) Uh, David Dingus taught me to really watch for this and I go, yep. So if you're perseverating, if you are stuck on the wrong answer but you don't know the right one, or you're just fixated on a topic. Why can't, you know, why can't we talk about this? We should just keep talking about this. Mm, perseverating is one of the fastest cognitive symptoms of sleep deprivation. So I kind of think looking for those symptoms rather mm-hmm. than rather than presuming someone's okay because they got an X number of hours is probably not where we need to go. Um I, yeah, I would look more for that that functioning issue.
0: Soft signs right. of, it, of functioning. Gotcha. Yeah, especially
1: because um dingus looked at you know and had people be completely sleep deprived and go in the lab and do a cognitive test maybe like how are you how are you doing and he's like oh, i feel they feel i feel terrible i haven't been to bed and then they had other people who just short slept for an hour each night so at a certain point they were they had the same number of missed hours of sleep as the people who hadn't gone to bed, but they had spaced them out. And they came into the lab, how you feeling? Great, wanna take a cognitive test? Sure, but they did just as badly as the people who hadn't slept.
0: Interesting. They just yeah. didn't
1: know it because they were used to feeling tired. That's right. the trick. We get so used to it that our body just thinks this is where we're supposed to be and doesn't realize which is again why then suddenly there's some quiet moment or something and people pass out because that yeah
0: yeah i think that i think that falls under the rubric of quality sleep and i think uh, there was yes, a bunch of research
1: and both are very right. important independently right. look
0: mm-hmm. looking at the research of how much the the cell phone is disrupting that quality because you have it in your room you're getting buzzed by a friend at 2am even though you're physically in bed for that 10 hours yep. that 10 hours is disrupted multiple times the quality can be dysfunctional i think even more interesting to me is the lymphatic system that's been now found that cleans out the brain and how much at young ages yeah. now we may be disrupting the actual protein clearance system that prevents alzheimer's and other things long term so there's a ain't it? lot eh. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it's very scary for for a resident who didn't sleep a whole lot for seven years. Um, Yeah, it's it's a bit terrifying because I went through a long period of time. I remember my wife and I were in uh, Italy traveling for three weeks backpacking after my residency was over right before I started working in private practice. And I remember it was like it was like the seventh or eighth day and I was sitting on a mountainside and I remember looking over to going, wow, this is what it feels like to be rested because i hadn't felt it in so long it was mm-hmm. it was shocking mm-hmm. and it was like okay it, and it was almost like this the switch in my head like i never want to go back to that place again of being sleep deprived and unhappy and wow that was really interesting and so i think that's also to your point you know helping these kids understand that they're i feel fine because i'm capable i'm functional i'm doing x y and z yeah well that's not true let's talk about what optimal is what's optimized version of yourself and i think this comes to all the different topics of nutrition and everything optimization is much more important than i feel fine or i'm doing x y and z so yeah these are you know all incredibly important topics that you've laid out in this book and we only touched on two and we're already at Oof, almost 50 minutes. It's just it's just <laughs> a testament to again of how amazing your research is and how easily your conversational ability is. We're definitely gonna have to have you back on to go through some more of this because I think the parents are going to glean more and more and more information from you li- live, real time, but also as they read your book. So let's 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 go to the last question because I like to ask this of all my guests. And you're gonna be interested because I have zero idea where you're gonna go with this question. <laughs> Um, Okay, but you're in the perfect location to ask it. So you are given a golden ticket. And that golden ticket allows you to walk over to Congress or the executive branch and say, Hey, I want this policy changed. And that ticket has to be honored. Mine is very simple. I want school food changed. I absolutely am indignant that in a society with three and a half trillion dollars in revenue or whatever we have, doesn't offer high quality whole food to kids. What's yours?
1: Ooh, I need a lot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You only get one. Like you said, you can't be be golden.
1: My golden ticket would be, I need a red line straight into the oval. I have a lot of opinions. The, um, can I give you two? I'll, I'll, Um, and I'm, I'm, I will, I know I'm doing, I'm starting. Since since you
0: allowed your billionaires to go to 15. That that was exactly what I was
1: thinking. Well, the reason I'm going to ask for two, normally I wouldn't, is I'll do one for kids and one for grownups. Got it. Uh, Because those are, those are different. Uh, For kids, actually, I think it's sleep. I think the most cost effective thing we could do to change kids' lives would be to explain to families how important it is. And that is true from the, uh, we talked uh, quite a bit about the cognitive, but physiologically, uh, kids who get short sleep are more likely to, significantly more likely to um, get obese. And research seems to suggest that that persists over the life course. Um, you know, kids who snore are more likely to be disruptive, have cognitive difficulty. And that again, you know, when we were at Nursery Shock, we were, you know, we were writing about concurrent research, but research since the publication of the book has found that these are longitudinal predictors. So in terms of the thing that would change every family's life, if our kids got more sleep when their brains were really at development, and then we encouraged this from federal programming whether we change school start times or just you know have psas every every kid in the, every parent in your community all agree it's a you know depending on your kids age this is the phone curfew they won't be missing anything out because no one else is allowed to text either right so there's no fear of missing out nobody gets to text it's a hard curfew just as hard as you can't go outside after exam or you know, play with your yep. friends. Yep. Hard curfew on cell phone use because kids need to get more sleep. If we did something like that, I think it could have a huge impact on our kids' lives and their brain development and their physiology. And that would just be the best. So no um, so I would do that one. Um, okay. I have to pitch my grown-up one because I've been working on this literally nonstop for two years. And I, <laughs> I have been searching for the golden ticket. <laughs> 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 so I kind of have to pitch the thing uh, that I have been working on for the past two years. Let's uh, hear it. Um, well, I, I, I don't know if you noticed, um, some people have been like, where have you been? And why haven't you been writing? Uh, I, you know, I had a newsletter for a while on high performance, stopped that, stopped blogging. I, and what happened is I um, was hired to work in the Pentagon for two years. And I had two separate positions. One was on diversity and inclusion for the Navy. And then I worked on sexual assault prevention for the Navy and the Marines. So um, I have, you know, currently I am searching for the golden ticket on several things that we can do to reduce sexual assault and sexual harassment, not just in the military, but in the the culture. And we really need to do this. Absolutely. And it's, it's much simpler than we think. Um, most, you know, things like sexual assault are predicted by workplace hostility. And, hostil- and you know, there's lots of studies. Workplace hostility is predicted by things like, um, are people willing to give you help when you ask for it? Uh, are you, do you feel comfortable asking someone about a personal problem? Do people yell at you in anger? Do they scream at you? Do they take credit for your work?
0: Yeah.
1: And things like that actually predict that you are two or three times more likely to be sexually assaulted that year. The workplace hostility measures predict workplace absenteeism, likelihood to be injured on the job, likelihood to um, drive home drunk within the past 30 days. All of these really small things really count And we none of no the the things I just mentioned I don't think anybody would say well that's good, but they wouldn't necessarily have spoken out, right? Right. They wouldn't have stopped the day to you know, or the boss wouldn't have said, well, I don't really like what's going on on the shop floor, but you know they're getting everything done, and I think it's okay. The science is pretty clear; it's not, and it can really have bad impact. So, conversate. One of my other soapboxes I have many lately you know, is the importance of civility, And again, like social media, the yeah. willingness we have to gang up on people and ratio people and scream at them or dox at them is so destructive yep. in ways we can't even f- fathom. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's a complicated golden ticket, but that's why mm-hmm. I said I had to have two. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and well, And it gets to the and it gets to the broader point of, of humans living in physiological fight or flight chronically, which is probably one of the number one ways that we as a as an organism struggle for health, vitality, because if you are always in a sympathetic overload, which is the fight or flight mode, that is very poorly set up to help you digest live be happy so all of those micro traumas that you're talking about in a hostile work environment are setting in the framework for poor sleep poor eating um, obesity and all the major health related outcomes that are bad on top of the harassment and 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 just the sexual abuse that that nightmare event if it does occur so to your point I I completely understand that yeah
1: Yeah. Adding to what you were saying, I, you know, I'm sort of obsessed and we wrote about it a a bit in top dog, but, you know, Whitney Berry Mendes is one of the leading researchers on this in terms of challenge and threat and challenge and threat is the step before fight or flight because challenge or threat is really saying, am I going to be able to succeed or how badly is this going to go? And if if I can succeed, then I'm going to stay and fight if i'm going to if i'm not going to succeed i'm then i need to flee. Yep, and yep. the research has shown that people who are in a higher threat state that i don't know if i'm going to be able to succeed i don't know if i'm going to be able to pre- prevail that predicts really bad cardio outcomes right. both in the short term and longitudinally. So yes to be perpetually on in the sort of on guard threat state and I think it's important to add that to the fight or flight because I don't think people would be like, well, I'm not scared. Like, are you always on guard? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm on, I'm always on guard. Yeah. There, there you go. That's where, that's I think where a lot of that, you know, the, the cortisol misre- uh, misregulation right. is going and the, the lower testosterone and then all these things you to know, go back to sleep, right? Go back right. to all of this. And dysregulated cortisol is going to dysregulate your sleep. Right. Then sort of all have a cumulative impact.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It becomes, they become what I call loops and they loop back on each other and you end Mm -hmm. up with this physiologic loop of dysfunction that's driving more dysfunction. Eventually it becomes compounded exponential pain. And and so, yeah, I totally agree. Well, Ashley, that was, um, the fastest hour that I think I've spent. It was, um, (laughs) I don't even know how to say how great that was I loved it so much that I hope you want to come back and go through maybe a couple other chapters once down the road but um, that was fabulous so I really appreciate you as I stated yours is one of my favorite books and still is dog-eared and ripped to shreds and then and one of my happy carry-alongs and and I continue to read as much as I can in this space and I love the work you've done and I just want to thank you for your hour Well,
1: thank you so much it was it was really fun I, I had a blast
0: Until next time, have a great day up in D.C. Thanks, you too. Well, there you have it, folks. A fantastic hour-long conversation with Ashley Merriman. She clearly, again, is an expert in her field, a phenomenal orator, discusser of these topics, and I look forward to having her on again to go through the rest of the chapters because there's eight other ones and lots of information for everyone to use for the remainder of our lives. And hopefully, as the data keeps coming out, we'll re-enter these spaces and find more and more ways to offer uh, you, the listener, ways of changing our parenting styles or our friendship styles or whatever things that help us live better lives collectively. What can we use from the social science research to help us make the best decisions for each other? Ultimately, living the most authentic life we can and helping to help others live their most authentic lives and especially our children is our goal. So to me, that's what I'm looking forward to. And I really appreciate the time she spent today and look forward to future work again. So I'm going to sign off. Remember, hug those kids. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.